Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host here in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And I started this show because I wanted to get all different perspectives on the process of composing and songwriting. And occasionally I have psychologists on the show. And this episode features Seth Horowitz, who is a fascinating neuroscientist. He's worked with bats and dolphins and humans to find out a little bit more about how our brains hear. And he's applied this research to all sorts of things, like designing the sound of an alien race for a sci-fi show. He's also worked on some oral therapy tracks, which, if you listen to them, can help induce sleep, or help you focus, or even help relieve pain. Seth has written a book that I recommend checking out if you like this episode. It's called The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. Now, I have a special shout-out to the first-ever official Composer Quest patron. Thank you very much to Sarah Olson in Michigan. She's been an active fan of Composer Quest, and though I've never met her in person, seems very cool. You might bump into her on Twitter at M-I-Mini-Ha-Ha, which is M-I-M-I-N-N-E-H-A-H-A. Ooh. So anyways, thank you, Sarah. If anyone else is interested in becoming a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash charlie. Stick around till the end of the episode and you'll get to hear my entry for the Hans Zimmer Remix Contest. As always, you can find all the ComposerQuest episodes at composerquest.com. And feel free to say hi, email me, charlie at composerquest.com, or find ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. Now let's get to my talk with Seth Horowitz. It sounds like you've worked on sound research of all sorts and strapping lasers to the back of bats. That sounds like fun. Also done on the surface of sound in a very obscure way. (laughs) I didn't get to my PhD program until I was in my 30s, but I sort of looked back afterwards and realized almost everything I've done one way or another has something to do with sound. Could you explain The Universal Sense for people who don't know what that book is about? Okay. The idea of The Universal Sense was something I realized when I was in graduate school. When my advisor, first thing she gave me as sort of a quest was find me the the species that doesn't hear. And while there are a lot of blind animals, there are a lot of animals with very little touch, very limited sense of smell, the only senses that all vertebrates, all animals with backbones have, are hearing and balance, which is an outgrowth of the same set of organs when you're an embryo. Balance and hearing are both in the ears. But hearing is such a useful sense. It works in the dark, it works underwater, it works out of line of sight, that all vertebrates have come to rely on it as their alarm system, their system for figuring out where things are in the world. And it's a very fast system. We're very visual, but it can take you a quarter to a half a second to recognize something visually. It's really quite slow. Hearing, on the other hand, runs 20 to 100 times faster than vision. This is why you can have these tremendous unconscious or emotional reactions to sounds that are harder to get from vision or take longer anyway. Think about when you go to a movie. You think you're responding to the visual scenes you're seeing, but 
the quick emotional reactions you're having are all really to the sound, which is why a movie with bad sound can irritate you or drive you away from a visually wonderful scene faster than anything else. So I wrote The Universal Sense to try and explore this and to make people realize that we don't pay attention to sound and hearing mostly because it happens so quickly that consciously we put it in the service of vision, but it's actually driving almost everything that we do. Hmm. How, how much do you think people hear the world differently from person to person? Aside from the fact that our hearing changes as we get older, when you're talking about people who have normal hearing, just, you know, as all the same age, you still get a lot of variability. Uh, if you've seen any of those uh, nature documentaries about you know, the seal pup screaming in the middle of the sea lion colony and the mom can come over and pick out her pup, and we look at this as, oh, isn't nature, animals wonderful, they can do this. Hasn't been studied much, but humans do it too. Uh, if you have any friends who are beginning to have kids, they will tell you that the woman's hearing changes during pregnancy. As soon as the kid's born, they can pick their kid out of a screaming mom of kids at daycare. Women's hearing is sharper throughout the lifespan than men's. Not fair. They live longer. They have better hearing, but... <laughs> but what is also interesting is how it seems to the learning process of learning your kid's screams, your kid's voice, lets you pick it out of the crowd. That's out of a very basic thing about hearing, which gets called the cocktail party effect. If you go to a loud room, you're in a party or a bar or something, and you can't really make anything out because everyone's talking, but someone says your name, you will immediately pick out that sound through the noise. Your brain, in hearing something that it's used to a lot, has reorganized itself physically. I mean, the neurons actually change their position and their connections to make it easier for you to pick up stuff that you've heard before. This is called Hebbian learning. It's things that fire together, things that have happened together before, wired together, they physically change. And so something that's familiar and important, you will pick it out of noise. That explains why anytime I'm watching a movie, my girlfriend will point out, oh, there's a bassoon. Bassoon player score. will take it. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah, every time, I, the one thing that I have with movies is if I hear the Wilhelm scream, which is a, you okay, you know what that is. Yeah. It's yeah. the most famous scream that's used in every movie when someone gets shot or falls off a wall. Ah! It's become a drinking game for me. It's like, Wilhelm scream, <laughs> take a shot. <laughs> George Lucas was infamous for that, wasn't he? Yes. I think. Yeah. yeah. But it's in almost every movie. I think Sharknado had it about four times. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done any um, sound design for films? Just starting that out, uh, I work with the National Academy of Sciences in a group that links scientists with media people, film directors, television. And I've been contacted to help with sound design on some of them. Often, people who are asking, well, could, what would a, a sonic weapon sound like? I thought, well, sonic weapons don't really work that well, unless you're just making a big screaming noise that makes everyone cover their ears and run. But one show that's been put in for a pilot was about, it's a science fiction show, and they wanted to have very sound-sensitive aliens. We had to design an entire 
alien culture and a language. And we basically came up with uh, aliens that echolocate. So I got to take that work, which I'd done for many years, and try to apply it to a movie kind of television environment, which was a lot of fun. And used very basic things. You know, bats have a very specific way of seeing the world with their ears. They can carry out multiple levels of resolution of sound in a way that we do with vision. We change our focus. They are able to put out sounds that have different wavelengths. And by having extremely precise circuits, very low down in their auditory system, they can get a very high resolution and create, figure out the shape of the object that Echo is coming back with. Now, there's a very basic relationship between size and sound. A very long wavelength is low pitch. This is why if you want to have a foghorn or the from a lighthouse, you want to make a very, very low pitch sound because you want it to be able to wrap around little things like people standing on the shore, rocks, and you want a, you know, a ship to be able to hear it far away. On the other hand, if you want to get an echo off something or detect it, a very small object like a bat trying to get a June bug or a mosquito, you have to use extremely high-pitched sounds because they have very short wavelengths. The tie-in with size is a very large animal is not going to make too many very high-pitched sound because their sound-generating equipment is large. So an elephant, when it rumbles, is making subsonic, infrasonic sounds that are so low-pitched that they can actually transmit it through the ground and get echoes off bodies of water that are underground. They use it sort of as a low-frequency echolocation for big things. They also communicate with other elephants, and you can't hear them. On the other hand, if you look at a bat or a shrew, they're tiny little animals, so their pitches are going to be very small. So what we did for this television series is we took bat sounds. We said, okay, if the bat was six feet tall, what would it sound like? And we were able to take that and using some of the data that we had gotten from what does an echo sound like of certain shapes and how long does it take for the sound to get back based on the size of the room, we were able to create sound design for an echolocation language. What's that series called? At the moment, it's called Hunters, and it's sitting on someone's desk at Sci-Fi. And uh, the okay. person I'm working with is Natalie Chaidez and Gail and Hurd, who does Walking Dead. Cool. So you've worked a lot with dolphins in the past. Yep. What is the dolphins' communication with sound like? We really don't understand it. They are echolocators. They do, they do it differently than bats because they're communicating underwater. Water is much denser than air, so the speed of sound in water is five times faster than air. So a dolphin, or an echolocating whale, puts out a signal, and it goes five times further than it does in air. Like a, a bat is only able to echolocate out to about 10 meters, 34 feet, something like that. Sperm whales, which can put out signals at 200 decibels, which would basically blow your head so hard that your eardrums would meet in the middle. 
can put out such a high-powered beam in dense medium that it will bounce off the bottom of the ocean or off a temperature thermocline and go for hundreds of miles. And what they do is they make this click. The click puts out a tremendous amount of energy across all frequencies because it's noise. It's white noise, and white noise means energy at all frequencies. It goes out, hits something, comes back, and their brain has to do some kind of a deconvolution that says, I got a reflection from this wavelength and this wavelength and this wavelength. There's something this kind of size around. So dolphins and other echolocating whales like belugas, orcas, sperm whales, figure out their environment from echolocation. But there's some evidence that they may use that for direct communication as well. There was a study done... It was in the 80s at the Shedd Aquarium with two belugas. And they were in adjacent tanks, and they couldn't see each other. But one was shown how to pull on a rope and lift a gate. So that if they both lifted the gate, they could see each other and they could echolocate directly. So one was trained, and the other one couldn't see it, but they heard a series of echolocation clicks. And then the other whale, who was out of line of sight lifted the gate. The only interpretation we could get at the time was that they were sending picture communication to each other. Do this. So that's one possibility. They also have a whistle. I'll hesitate to call it a language, but it must be pretty close to that. Individual dolphins, if you get to work with them, have a whistle name. And this was stuff done by Peter Tyak, where he went out on a boat and they would take one dolphin out of the water and put it into the boat. If the dolphin they took out was the leader, all the dolphins in the water would make this whistle that was the leader's name. If they took out a calf or a younger dolphin, that dolphin called its mother's name. All the other dolphins would call the pod leader's name. The whistle language is not just names, and some people will say it's not language, but it's a very complex communication system. And when you bring into the fact that they can do this whistle communication and do echolocation at the same time, they can have an extremely complex communication format. And we still don't understand it. I was checking out your oral therapy tracks that you had. And I was kind of curious what your rationale is behind how these different tracks sound. This is my work with Neuropop. I'm working with Lance Massey, who's the composer and coder. Lance called me up and said, what's a psychophysics? And so I explained it to him and said it's about mapping the world out there onto the psychological world and how all the senses try to link together. And he said, so if you had multiple senses acting together, would you remember things stronger? Uh, would it be easier to remember? And I said, yeah. So he said, well, I've got this visual logo, which is 
three pink rectangles, a gray rectangle above and another pink rectangle. If I made a sound that matched that, would it be more memorable? And I said, yeah, because you're getting multisensory integration. And so he said, great, let me try this. And it became the T-Mobile logo. Hmm. That was where we started, using music to get psychological reactions out of people. What we wanted to try to do is figure out what's happening in the brain and then try to apply things that would elicit a very specific stimulus. And we, we experimented with it for years. We released a CD that was a bunch of experiments in 2004 called The Overload, which was a lot of fun. And in that one, we were trying to get see if we could use timing and frequency to help people focus. We had one track that called Focus. Some people said that it really helped them focus. Others said they couldn't do anything but focus on the song. stuff works sometimes it doesn't work and we've had some success and we figured out how to get people to actually fall asleep normally just using sound and we built on the idea that hearing runs while you're asleep and we figured out certain things that cross talk between hearing and balance called the soapite syndrome if you've ever been in a car and found yourself falling asleep or if you know someone who has kids and they throw them in the back of the car to make them fall asleep it's a form of motion sickness that you get from very low-frequency, semi-regular sound. And we figured out you could actually use low-frequency sound that's modulated the way sound would be in the back of an old car, varying pseudo-randomly, to trigger this form of motion sickness that makes you fall asleep. One of the things that we tried doing, well, we're still trying to do, some stuff for video games. And we figured out, oh, you know, it's really easy to make people really nauseous when listening to sounds. <laughs> it's not the brown brown tone, but it's oh, okay. kind of close. <laughs> I was, it was, yeah. We saw it as video games. Oh, you're losing points. Might as well feel sick. <laughs> yeah, my friend would be mad at me if I didn't ask you about the brown note and if it exists. There are ways of inducing physical sensations of nausea but you need a either a very very loud sound which can vibrate your body you don't just pick up sounds through your ears your entire body can act as a resonator and one reason that people can get ill in the presence of very loud low frequency sounds is that if it's powerful enough or close enough you can resonate your belly and that can make you feel nauseous However, because you can trick your inner ear that controls balance using low-frequency sound at the right rate, you can also make people get motion sick just using sound. But it's pretty tricky to find it. So there is not a sound that's going to make you lose sphincter control, no matter what South Park says, but there are sounds that can make you very nauseous. 
so that's the punishment in the video game is well that's what we thought but so far we haven't found any takers who really want their game players feeling ill as they lose points (laughs) we're also currently working on something and we're hoping to start clinical trials very soon uh, of pain relief one of the Mm -hmm. things about pain is that while most people are looking at the pharmacological aspects of it it's an attentional thing as well and if you know if you've been trying to pay attention to something when you have a toothache it prevents you from paying attention to anything else and people with chronic pain one of the worst parts of it is not so much the pain as their inability to do anything else because pain sucks your attention away from cognitive behavior so Two of the things that sound and hearing do very well are grab and hold your attention and mask other things. So what we are trying to do right now is come up with something that could be used for chronic pain, people with chronic pain or for people who are undergoing procedures like dental work, which is really hard not to pay attention to, or minor surgical procedures. And some people have said they'd really love to try it out for tattoo parlors and aesthetic boutiques where you're being waxed. What we're trying to do is create something that is a mask to prevent external environment from impinging on you, grabbing your attention with specific percussion sounds and specific sounds that just hold your attention onto the sound and interfere with memory transfer. There are specific rhythms in the brain that occur when you're transferring things from short-term to long-term memory. And what we found through some early tests is that you can interfere with that with sound very easily. Like if you're trying to study or write something up and sound keeps intruding, a dripping faucet, someone playing their music too loud, it keeps you from being able to pay attention and to being able to remember what you just did. It's very frustrating unless you repurpose it. This isn't a way to stop pain. It's not going to give you a pharmacological change so that pain goes away like taking a serious painkiller but what it can do is keep you from remembering it and keep you from paying complete attention to it so it would be very interesting because it might be an effective pain relief it could also reduce people's dependence on painkillers that's really cool how exactly will the percussion sounds factor into keeping people's attention Uh, Percussion sounds, especially metallic ones, like uh, a hi-hat, a very brief, very broadband sound grabs your attention. If they're played at a very specific rate, they can interfere with other attention, and they can interfere with a lot of things going on in your brain, like trying to remember something. So this is one reason I work very closely with Lance, Lance Massey. He's a musician, and I was a musician many years ago, but... When it comes to composition, you really don't want to hear my music. I pass that on to him. I come up with the numbers, how the brain works, and he's the guy who can actually make it sound like something someone would listen to. (laughs) Um, I noticed that you posted the top 10 noisiest toys of 2013 or something. Yeah, it's done every year by several agencies, yeah. Yeah, one of them was really surprising. 114 decibels if you had it right up to your ear. Yeah. 
That's the problem with kids' toys testing. It's like, they, yes, they're rigorous about testing it and putting out noise levels, but they put out noise levels at a standard which might be 15 centimeters away, which, you know, is pretty close because most noise standards are done at one meter. But they said, okay, it's for a kid's toy. We'll make it shorter. The problem is kids put things right up against their head. They'll stick their head into things. So you have to look at the fact that for every doubling of distance, you lose six decibels. Six decibels doesn't seem like much, but it's actually much, much louder. There's a lot more power in something that's six decibels pressure level louder. So if a kid is playing with, you know, their speak and spell and they're holding at arm's length, which is, you know, for a little kid six, eight inches away, and then they move it up to their ear and they pull the string to hear the cow goes moo. The cow is going moo, not at 85 decibels, which I think is too loud anyway, but at 110 decibels. What's the equivalent of that? Uh, like got, hold a, jet a gun engine? next to your head. Oh, jeez. Yeah. It's the, it's the loudest subway shriek you can imagine. And <laughs> people are getting more aware of this. Things like kids' headphones now have standard limiters on them. You can't go above 85 decibels. You can take a normal iPod or iPhone and crank it up because it's your favorite song, and you can get 110 decibels out of even cheap headphones. And if you use something like in-ear etymotic headphones, which seal out the outside world, you can get as much damage as sticking your head near a jet engine because there's no pressure relief. Huh. I never thought about that. So the having something jammed in your ear just means all the sound is even more focused. Yeah, there's no pre- there's no escape. The only pressure relief is a little structure inside your inner ear which pushes in and out as pressure changes in the ear, but the whole point of sound is that it goes into an open tube and natural sounds can do damage, but if you close that tube up even th- something you think of as just being your entertainment can approach really dangerous levels. What is noise in our environment doing to us as humans? Constant sound is a stressor. It's a chronic stressor. Now, a little bit of stress is actually good for you. It gets your heart pumping, it gets your immune system to pop up, because it's getting you ready for some kind of a challenge. But when that stressor is going on all the time, your body is living in a state of constant stress. And you end up with failure of immune system, you end up with cardiovascular problems, you end up with a lot of health-related problems. And there have been a lot of really good studies that have shown that people in noisier environments tend to have much more cardiovascular problems, high blood pressure, heart problems, respiratory problems, Uh, even kidney issues just because they're constantly fighting against stress hormones being put into the bloodstream. Well, I have a listener question for you from Sarah Olson. She was wondering, what is the effect of learning music? I guess, on your brain, especially for young people. You've probably heard of what was called the Mozart effect. This was a very interesting but very small study done that showed that if you listen to this one Mozart piece, uh, people who did that showed higher 
levels of performance on a very specific spatial intelligence task. And people were saying, listen to Mozart makes you a genius. It doesn't work that way. What happens when you listen to music, especially classical music or very harmonic music? Your brain and your hearing listens for consonant music because the harmonics, the acoustic elements of the music are mathematically aligned. Your brain loves things that are mathematically aligned because it helps to put them together, to synchronize them. So when you listen to music, your brain is able to synchronize more and more inputs so that if you listen to a Mozart piece or a Beethoven piece, which is at a very human tempo, they don't have sort of the acid jazz, play as quickly as possible with as many dissonance as possible, it gets your brain physically reconnecting itself to hear those harmonics better, and it's easier for you to process information. What are some takeaways for composers from your research and your book? When you're composing, you're basically trying to elicit an emotional visceral response from another person. And this is something that's built very far down in our brainstem. We respond emotionally to music. So if you want to get an emotional response for someone, you can compose better by understanding how the brain actually listens. You can also even look at genres. Uh, why is pop music popular? It's because it tends not to be something that is challenging. It's something that's familiar. Pop music always sounds the same. The mix that's used has... You know, it used to. One of the reasons that I have problems with a lot of contemporary popular music is that the, every, literally everyone is using the same mix. You get this wall of sound with no variation, and what that does is your brain just. You know, you start off with something loud and very beat driven, and your brain is hearing the same thing over and over, and it starts tuning out. When composing. Some of the most effective and powerful pieces from any genre are ones that change the overall sound, suddenly putting in silence, or a radical change in key will grab someone's attention. The use of silence in composition is drastically underappreciated because, I mean, your brain grabs onto silence, especially when you've been listening to something for quite a while so that if you've got a steady beat going and all of a sudden it stops your brain starts synchronizing listening what happened so having amplitude dynamics having big changes in sound keeps people's attention going changing the layering whether you're having low strings kind of carrying on that you don't necessarily pe keep people paying attention to and suddenly striking in with another instrument will also grab their attention and yet those strings that you're not attending to can be carrying the rhythm. Each instrument, each timbre is lumped differently by your brain. So if you've got a lead guitar going off at one rate and everything you don't have anything else other than guitar and bass you attend, your attention is just going to be split between those two, and then the drum tries to kick in and keep things going. If you don't change the amplitude, if you don't change the instruments, people's attention is going to wander. You can go ahead and 
you know, try and keep people going with a heavy beat that never changes, but you have to sort of make it louder and louder to keep them locked in on it, and that causes problems with, you know, hearing. So my advice to composers would be is be as dynamic as you possibly can, and it doesn't mean be louder. It means make changes between different timbres of instruments. Give yourself places for quiet as well as loudness. And bear in mind that the reason most popular pop songs are about three and a half minutes long if you're doing pop is because that's about people's attention span. You've got 50 milliseconds to be able to differentiate two sounds, but after three minutes or so, people's attention wanders unless you give them something major to make a break. So if you have a longer piece, you want to make sure that you're imposing changes every few minutes. Otherwise, again, your listener's attention is going to wander. Hmm. Good advice. Is the dynamics in music, like you're talking about, does that cause musical chills? Or what is it that causes that effect? Musical chills are something that's all over the place in terms of the science. What it seems to be associated with is a triggering of one of our built-in reward systems. You can get reward in your brain from almost anything. It depends on your background, depends on what you personally like, what your experience. Uh, For me, extraordinarily rich choral harmonies can do it. At a very basic level, it's hearing something that gathers more and more of your brain in to the point and synchronizes it to the point that you start triggering your reward system. And one of the things that seems to happen is a release of dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that does a lot of things. It's not a reward neurotransmitter, but it seems to prepare your body for rewarding sensations. So that when you hear something, a piece of music that is extremely immersive for you, more and more of your brain synchronizes to it until you reach a kind of a climax point and the reward system kicks in and that gives you this bodily reaction which many people describe as the chills Hmm. well seth i've kept you here for a while um but it's been fascinating thank you so much charlie and be pleased to talk with you again sometime yeah definitely That's my talk with Seth Horowitz. If you want to check out some of his sound projects, you can go to neuropop.com, and you can find his book on Amazon. Again, it's The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. Now, as promised, it's time for... So I saw that Hans Zimmer had a contest out to remix one of his tracks that he composed. And unfortunately, the contest is over, but I do try to post these kind of opportunities on ComposerQuest's Twitter and Facebook pages, so get connected if you aren't already. So here's a little taste of what Hans Zimmer's epic track sounds like, called Destiny's Door. And the part that I liked the most was the solo trumpet line and the brass section. (laughs) 
So what I did was chop up the trumpet part in the beginning to create some new melodies and make it a trumpet trio. And then later on, I used the whole brass section, but I pitch shifted it down nine half steps, which you would think would sound way too low and muddy, but it actually worked out really well. It kind of turned the trumpet part into a French horn and just made all the low brass even lower. So here it is, my remix I called Lungs of Steel, because I'm pretty sure there's some trumpet lines that are impossible to play. <laughs> 